Okay, so we are now in the second session. So this is 8 o'clock and we'll go to a little bit before 9. Um, actually, since I said the word recovered, <coughs> do you guys use that word recovered in this area? Yes. You do? Okay. Because for people who have a hard time with that word, they often think it means cured. And I always use my ankle as an example that if you see me walk around, you would never know I had an, an ankle injury. I've recovered from that ankle injury. However, I do have an ankle injury, and if I don't do the maintenance, like I do yoga and I do different things to keep my ankle supple, my ankle gets really cranky and it starts to hurt again. So even though, <coughs> sorry, even though I've recovered from that injury, I am not cured of that injury. It's the same thing. When I say I'm recovered, it means that I'm asymptomatic. It means that I do not want the foods that I'm allergic to. But I also understand that I am not cured of this disease, which means I cannot not do the steps and I can never, ever, ever have those, those foods again. Um, <coughs> the way I describe it, I used to think I was always one bite away, one bite away, one bite away is the way I, just, I was told the disease was. I no longer believe I'm one bite away. What I believe is I'm three or four thoughts away. So I treat my thinking with these steps and therefore I do not want to eat the food. If I'm one bite away, that's when I'm white knuckle abstinent just trying to work a physical solution. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So we're going to skip over Bill's story and we're going to get into the chapter There is a Solution which starts on page 17 and it's regular numbers. So no more Roman numerals and we can all be on the same page. <coughs> So I have two prejudices I'm going to talk about um, in the beginning and then let's check those prejudices at the end of the chapter again. So my one prejudice um, or my one old idea is anyone who is fat or overeats is a compulsive overeater. My second one is my main problem is my food therefore my, uh, there, therefore my answer is abstinence. Okay, So let's look at what the, what the book is telling us here. So if we go to page um, 20, and there's a solution, that first full paragraph, you may have already asked yourself why it is that all of us have become so very ill from drinking. Doubtless you are curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. So they're really stressing that twofold illness, right? If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may be asking, what do I have to do? That's a good question to ask yourself when you're in step one. Do I believe I'm an alcoholic and do I want to get over it? <coughs> I have to tell you, in high school, I prayed every night to be a size 14. I was, when I was having um, talking with Kika today, in my area, a very um, popular store in the 80s was 16 plus. So, my goal was to be a size 14 so I couldn't shop in 16 plus anymore. <laughs> so every night I would pray to be a size 14. I never once prayed to stop eating. What I wanted was the consequences taken away. So to get over it means do I want to recover from this disease and the truth was no I didn't. I wanted a way to not have the consequences which, which is what led to my bulimia. Um, so how do I, what do I have to do? It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. So I don't need to figure it out. You know, OA has a 12 and 12, AA has a 12 and 12. What they both are are simply reflections of people who've gone through the steps about what the steps mean to them. They're essays. 
There is no instructions in the OA 12 and 12. There's no instructions in the AA 12 and 12. We have a wonderful book called Abstinence. Um, AA has a wonderful book called Living Sober. Neither of those books are directions either. They're just essays about people's experiences in the fellowship. The only book that says, here are the directions, is the big book. And they're going to answer such questions specifically. So that next pa paragraph are all questions, not that I would ask you, or you would ask me as fellow compulsive overeaters. These are questions that non-compulsive overeaters ask us. These are the people that love us and care about us. So it says, how many times have they said to us, these people that love us, I can take it or leave it alone, why can't he? Why don't you eat like a lady? That fellow can't handle the liquor, why don't you try beer and wine, lay off the hard stuff? <coughs> so these are the people that are saying to me, well, you know, when you go to the restaurant, just cut it in half. Have the rest later. The rest to me is five minutes later, but, <laughs> you know, and I could sort of eat like a lady in public, but don't get me in private. Lay off the hard stuff. Well, why don't you just have the diabetic candy or have the, the low fat, low sugar, whatever type of thing. You, you'll be fine. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he would was, he was stop for her sake. <coughs> um, she, and this one always hurt. He, he could stop if he wanted to. Like I was a bad person because I couldn't stop. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him, but here, there he is all lit up again. You know, I always think of my best friend from childhood is a, is a doctor, and I remember when she was in medical school and she called me one time. I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember if I was in OA or not, but she called me up and was, was so frustrated because she had a patient that was 450, 500 pounds, diabetic, and was having toes removed from the diabetes the next day. And she went to see her to see how she was doing, and she was in the room with her family eating cheesecake. And she's like, what is she doing? She's losing her toes tomorrow and she's eating cheesecake. And my thought was, well, she's losing the toes. What's the point? You know, it's not going to change anything. She has the cheesecake now. That's the kind of mind that I have. So sometimes what helps me personally is to think of something I don't have a problem with to understand these questions. So I personally do not have a problem with shopping. I'm actually very cheap. And do you guys have Costco out here? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Home offices. Yeah. Oh, the home offices are here. Oh. Oh boy. Well, people in my area are Costco crazy. They're, Costco's like the big thing there, and I hear people complaining all the time of how much money they spend at Costco and they're out of control at Costco. And I just think to myself, well, you know what? Write a list of what you're going to buy and don't buy anything off the list. If that's a problem, why don't you set a dollar amount? Say you're only going to spend $60 and not spend a, a dollar more. <laughs> or if you really have a problem, why don't you just go to Costco once a month and then you won't have a problem? And that makes logical sense to me because I don't have a problem with shopping. So if I flip that script, what are people telling me? Kim, just write your food down and don't eat anything off what you write down. Or you know what, count points. If you set a number of points for the day and just don't have anything with those points, then you're fine. <laughs> or if you really, really have a problem with pizza, why don't you just have pizza every other month? You should be good. And I look at them like they're freaking crazy because I can't do that because I am an addict when it comes to food and I'm a moderate shopper. I, do I overspend once in a while? Absolutely. I had to get cute outfits for this weekend. I overspend a little bit. <laughs> 
So that's what I have to realize is, is that it says here, these are commonplace observations on drinking, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. <coughs> this to me too is why there are 200 12-step programs. 200. Why can't we all go to the same meeting? Because number one, step one is the allergy, which we differ from. My step one experience is not the step one of experience of an alcoholic or a drug addict or a sex addict or a gambler. And the second thing is who do I carry the message to? I can't carry the message to an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. And if you're blessed to have more than one addiction, you're going to have to sponsor people in both addictions because that's how you're going to stay sober and abstinent and whatever the other definitions are, those other 12-step fellowships. But that's why I, those fellowships are needed. The steps in between are the same. I actually attend AA meetings, but I'm a member of Overeaters Anonymous. Get the difference? Because I'm not, I, don't have a, I don't share a step one experience in the AA rooms. <coughs> so now we talked about that 10% in the doctor's opinion. So they're now going to teach us about the 90%. So at the bottom of page 20, that last full paragraph, Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely. If they have a good reason for it, they can take it or leave it alone. I often use my brother as an example of this. My brother, um, him and his wife had a townhouse and they sold their townhouse and were having a house built. So they had to live with his in-laws for six months. And I saw him about three months in. My brother's never had a weight problem in his life. And he put on like 30 pounds. And I'm like, Jeff, what happened? He's like, oh, Mrs. Connolly is such a good cook. I come home, she's got this full meal, two desserts. And I'm like, wow. Well, six months happens, he moves into his new house. I see him and the weight's off. Why? Because when it's there, he'll take it. And when it's not, he leaves it alone. He could care less. Is that my experience with food? Absolutely not. So we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have had the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate. Although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. So we talked about that a little bit earlier. Maybe some of our binge buddies that ate exactly like us, but got the diagnosis of diabetes, or maybe their husband threatened to leave them if they didn't lose weight and they lose weight and they're fine because the threat or the wanting of something was enough to make them stop. So I personally am the hard drinker. I never had a drink till I went to college. I drank alcoholically for 10 years. I could go to any AA meeting and tell a damn good alcohol story because I've had a lot of consequences from my drinking. But what happened at the age around 27 is I was at a bar I felt that I was less drunk than my friend. I offered to drive her home and I went the wrong way down a highway and almost killed us both. I, scared, I was scared to death, stop drinking. Just stop drinking. Now, if I had been pulled over by the cops that night, what would the legal system have told me? They would have told me I was an alcoholic. And they would have probably sentenced me to AA meetings and I would have gone into some contemporary AA meetings that say just put the plug in the jug you know, don't eat, drink no matter what, don't matter what, don't drink. And I could have done that. And I could have been a success story in AA because I had the good story and I stopped. But I don't need the steps because I don't have the mental twists. And in fact, a few years when I was in, I, after I got in OA and I was in relapse and I said, why am I not drinking? I'm not even an alcoholic and I'm sitting here eating. And I remember getting, uh, ordering a beer at a restaurant and I got halfway through that beer and thought, 
if I'm not going to get drunk, why the hell am I drinking this? I don't even like the taste of it. I, I liked being drunk. I didn't like alcohol. So I obviously didn't have the allergy either. So the reason I'm saying this too is once again, third tradition, everyone is welcome in Overeaters Anonymous. But we have a lot of people that aren't real compulsive overeaters and over not overeaters anonymous. If someone comes into, I, I, I mean, I definitely have people in my area that oh, when I mentioned them, oh yeah, I went to the OA. Yeah, I went, I went a little while in like the early 2000s, and I got a diet, and people told me, gave me some good tips. It was wonderful. But they're not in the OA anymore because that's all they needed was some diet tips. I also know a lot of people in OA that they don't, they are in a 12-step program, working a nine-tool program. <laughs> and their tools work beautifully for them. The structure of the tools is enough to keep them abstinent and happy. If you can be abstinent and happy working the tools only, you're not a real compulsive overeater because you don't need the steps. Now, everyone always says I'm a tool basher, but I want to explain this in this way. I think it's very easy to work the tools and not work the steps. I think it's impossible to work the steps and not work the tools. So let's say I have a piece of wood here and I have a screwdriver and a hammer and nails and screws and I just start banging stuff in it. What good is that? But if I want to build a doghouse, I need that hammer, those screws and those nails because that's the only way I'm going to build that doghouse. So the question is, what are you building? And if you're a real compulsive overeater, you might be working a nine tool program and be miserable. <coughs> I know for myself, that's what I did for years. I was a meeting maker, make it fool. And you know what happened? The day I didn't make a meeting, I'd pick up. I, I remember coming into OA and, and having some abstinence, and when I relapsed and I came back, and, I, and I said, they said, what happened? They said, oh, you know what? You're not going to enough meetings. So I would go to more meetings, and then I'd relapse. And then I'd come back, and I'd say, so they'd say, what happened? And I would tell them, and they oh, you're not making enough phone calls. Oh, okay. And then I'd make more and more phone calls and I'd pick up again and again. Because the tools work only for a limited amount of time if you're a real compulsive overeater. Because you need a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps in order to have relief. I know for me, I, I, I had relief because the fellowship was really strong for a certain amount of time in OA, but I never had freedom. Never had freedom. Once again, I thought a good day in a way is if I was able to keep myself busy enough that I could go to bed with my, putting my head on the pillow being abstinent one more day even though I was totally exhausted and beat up. I, the, 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 the miracle I experience on a daily basis is I do not want my food. I, it's, I am totally neutral. We're going to talk about those 10 step promises. I'm not cocky or afraid. I was always cocky. Everybody eats just like me. <coughs> or I was terrified, I'm one bite away, I'm one bite away. I'm safe and protected. I can go anywhere on this earth and not be tempted because I have had a spiritual awakening. But that's because of the steps. So if, like, once again, if someone is doing a nine-tool program and miserable, which was my experience for a long time, try the steps. <laughs> You're probably a compulsive overeater untreated. Okay, so let's go to page 23. <coughs> and that first full paragraph. These observations, so these observations are of the allergy, the physical allergy. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink. 
thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So the big book is going to start transitioning away from the allergy and start totally focusing on the mental twist. You know, um, we, t we keep talking about my ankle, but I I'm allergic to penicillin. I had a really bad reaction as an infant. I don't know what it was. Um, but when I broke my ankle and I was put in the ambulance and it was a snowstorm, so I, the ambulance was po popping up and down on these little, you know, the snow moguls, and I thought I was going to pass out. So I remember grabbing the woman in the, in the ambulance and saying, I think I might pass out. Please put on my chart. I'm allergic to penicillin. Like that's how sane I am about the idea that I'm allergic to penicillin. And I, I'm in my 50s. I have no delusion that I grew out of that. You know, allergy, in fact, my personal opinion is probably the, the, the allergic reaction would be that much worse because my body is that much older. Yet I have thousands of examples, thousands of examples of what the food does to me and what the food does for me. And yet I continue to eat over and over again. That's the insanity. I often use this, this silly example. Let's say I have an allergy to, to, to poison ivy. And I love to hike. You guys have beautiful mountains here and love, love to hike. So I wear all my protective gear. I know what poison ivy looks like. And I can walk around and enjoy the sunshine and the birds singing and the beautiful trails. So the fact that I have an allergy to poison ivy is really academic. But what if I have this allergy to poison ivy and I start to walk and suddenly I don't even notice the sun or the birds singing. All I see is the poison ivy and the poison ivy, and the poison ivy, and the poison ivy, until finally I strip down to my underwear, jump in the poison ivy, and roll around in it. <laughs> you would think I'm crazy, right? But do you think I'm crazy because, I have the po because I'm allergic to poison ivy, or am I crazy because my mind told me to roll around in the frickin' poison ivy? So my insanity is not in the allergy. That's a physical, biological thing. My insanity is in the mind that tells me this time will be different. This is how I can beat the game. So we're going to totally be transitioning over to that. So let's go to page 24 and that first full paragraph. <coughs> and this is in the squiggly writing. If you guys are Joe and Charlie fans, instead of italics, Joe is squiggly writing. So it's going to tell me three things. I have no choice, no willpower, and no memory. This is the description of the real compulsive overeater. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. So if we go to most rehabs today, probably the first question they're going to ask you on the intake form is, what is your drug of choice? So if I am being honest, I could say alcohol because I drank alcoholically for 10 years and I chose not to. I smoked, I know it's legal here now, but I smoked pot in the 80s when it was illegal in college. But the fear of getting arrested was so great, I, I stopped drinking, I stopped, stopped smoking. So I, marijuana is a drug of choice for me. I have chosen not to eat over and over and over and over again, and I continue to eat. It is my drug of no choice. If I think I have a choice, and if I do have a choice, I'm not a real compulsive overeater again. 
says we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory and the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So this is where it got confusing, at certain times. So I would remember the wedding in 1993 where I was able to control myself a little bit and I would forget about the rest of the 90s where I was an absolute lunatic. Because <laughs> I could kind of control myself in public once in a while. So I often compare this to playing Russian roulette with a gun. There's six chambers in there, I have one bullet in there, and I'm willing to, you know, hit the revolver because I have a five and six chance that I'm going to be okay. But as my disease starts to progress, I get to the point I have five bullets in the chambers now, and only one chance of not getting shot, yet I continue to pull the trigger over and over and over. And I have no memory. Kika told me again that you had Harlan here. Harlan is an incredibly gifted speaker. But how many of you have gone for a binge and thought, oh, I, I can't. What did Harlan say? <laughs> my, own, my own memories won't stop me. What makes me think that Harlan's memories are going to stop me? I will not remember the pain and the suffering yesterday. I, once again, I will forget what the food does to me and only remember what the food does for me. And we are without defense against the first drink. I really had to get that. It wasn't the third donut that was a problem. It was the first donut was the problem. Because I, I kept thinking calorically. Calorically, maybe I could have two donuts. But the problem is my body's not going to allow me just to have the two donuts. So this kind of goes against a lot of stuff that we hear in contemporary AA and contemporary OA. Once again, my, my opinion um, is there's a lot of hard eaters in OA and a lot of hard drinkers in AA. So when you hear in AA, you know, um, remember that last drunk and, you can, and that's enough to keep you sober, you're not a real alcoholic. Keep it green, that's that memory thing. I don't have the ability to do that. Play the tape through, like the consequences are going to stop us? No. Um, Remember that? Think, I think the drink through. So all those sayings that we hear in the rooms, if that works for you, once again, you probably don't have, you're probably not part of that 10%. And then then two paragraphs down, we had the questions before about the questions that um, other people ask us. Well, these are the questions we ask ourselves. So it says, the alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, here's how. I'm going to eat Jenny Craig desserts. <laughs> I know for me, I was a human calculator when it came to my, my um, exercise bulimia. I could tell you exactly how many minutes on an elliptical I had to do in order to burn off that Snickers bar or to earn that Snickers bar. I remember one time I was in, in the gym and uh, <coughs> I had like a 102 fever and I... Uh, I don't know if I passed out totally, but I fell off the elliptical and hit my head and I was bleeding and I was putting my hair in front of the blood because I was so afraid someone was going to make me stop because I needed to finish that in order to get rid of the consequences of whatever I binged. This is how I'm going to get rid of it. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us began to drink in this nonchalant way and after the third or the fourth pound on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how did I ever get started again? That makes me think of so many weddings I was in in my 20s. 
you know, I would dye it down to that size and at the rehearsal dinner, well, you know, I'm gonna fit in the dress tomorrow, so I'm just gonna have a little bit for the rehearsal dinner. And next thing you know, I, I, I barely remember the wedding. Most of the weddings, I can tell you what was on the dessert bar and I cannot tell you who was in the wedding. Because <laughs> it was totally focused on that. Only to have that supplanted by, well, I'll stop at the sixth drink or what's the use anyhow. And I always think of, you know, a few times that I would go to Dunkin' Donuts and get a dozen donuts for the office because I'm such a good coworker. <laughs> and then on the way there, I would think, well, I'm going to have my one or two, you know, before I get there. And then I would get to work and there'd be six left. And I'm like, nobody buys six donuts. What's the use anyhow? I'll finish all the rest of the donuts because it'll be too embarrassing to bring just six donuts in. What's the use anyhow? It's like, it amazes me how this book is 80 years old. It's like staring in my freaking window at night, knowing how my head works. Kim, mm -hmm. you said no, no choice, no something, and no memory. No it says no choice, no willpower, and no memory. So page 25, and I, I, I'm not sure how good my memory is with this, but when I first started, started calling into this um, phone meeting, I think we were on this page. And this page really made me realize um, that I was 17 years in and had no idea what I was talking about. You know, my attitude when somebody, when somebody wanted me to do the big book work, I said, listen, I was, I was the frickin' intergroup chair. What are you gonna tell me about OA? <laughs> I've done these steps a thousand times. They don't work for me. And I remember someone saying to me, how arrogant are you? This book has worked for alcoholics, drug addicts, gamblers, sex addicts, and you think you're so goddamn special, it's not gonna work for you? And I was like, whoa. And once I became a student of this book, I realized, huh, I've never done the steps. I've done my version of the steps and people's opinions of the steps, but I haven't actually done the steps as printed in this book. And I recovered. So he says here, there is a solution. I heard this old joke too. If you ever want to hide something from an alcoholic, put it in the big book, they'll never find it. <laughs> so if you want to know where the solution is, it's in the chapter called There is a Solution. <laughs> and just to confuse you, on page 25, they put it in squiggly writing so you don't see it. <laughs> so it says, there is a solution. Almost none of us liked. That was news to me. I thought I had to like it. I don't know about you, but I was told when I came in OA, go to six meetings, see if you like us. You know, if, don't worry about the steps. Get comfortable working your abstinence, and then you can work the steps. If I can get comfortable in my abstinence, I don't need the steps. The reason I need the steps was I can't get comfortable in abstinence. So they didn't like it, I didn't like it, you're not gonna like it, who cares? So here's the solution. The self-searching, which I see as step four. The leveling of our pride, which I see as steps five through seven. And the confession of shortcomings, which is eight and nine. So the solution is the inventory process, which we learn in four through nine, and then we implement it in 10 and 11. It says, which this process requires for its successful consummation. So you could take my path of 17 years of sitting in the rooms and suffering. I'm not gonna make you do a damn thing if you don't want to. But if you want successful consummation, you're gonna have to, there's gonna be some requirements.
It says on page 58, here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. The program of recovery is suggested. But if you decide to do the program of recovery, there's going to be a lot of musts, a lot of always, and a lot of nevers. I think I saw a hand. Did I see a hand? Yes. Could you repeat what you said about the self-searching is first with number four, and then what was after that? Five through seven. The leveling of our pride is five, six, and seven. And the confession of shortcomings is steps eight and nine. And that's my opinion. I've heard people use a different combination, but... So why am I going to do this? It says here, but we saw that it really worked in others and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we've been living it. So I, I personally call that that sacred space when two things happen. Number one, I see people in whom the problem had been solved. And I hear a clear message. And the second one is I'm at a place where I'm out of options. I'm hopeless. Now for me, personally, there were many times, um, you know, I just mentioned Joe and Charlie. I came in in 94, and in 96 I heard about these two guys from Arkansas that were going to be speaking in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I went to see them. I had no idea they were Joe and Charlie until years later. Um, and I remember being so impressed with these two guys. And I also remember walking out of there on a Sunday night going, that was amazing, but thank God I'm just a compulsive overeater and have to commit my food to my sponsor. So I couldn't have heard a more clear message, but I wasn't desperate and I wasn't hopeless. There were other times that I was desperate and hopeless and I had a ver there was a very muddled, unclear message in the rooms. So to me, there's that sacred space. And I actually just saw this meme again on um, Facebook. It was a picture of Bill Wilson and it says, we owe the newcomer an adequate representation of the big book. So to me, and my job as a recovered person, is I have to be consistently clear on carrying the message, which means I don't go into meetings and bitch and moan. I'm not, there to, I'm not there to share the mess. I'm there to share the message. Because I don't know whose ears and hearts are open at that specific moment. And what if someone's desperate and hopeless, and I want to bitch about my neighbor who I got in a fight with last weekend? So that's the sacred space. It says, when therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at your feet. I hope you all are like inspired this weekend, but coming to this weekend is not going to get you recovered. The question is, what are you going to do with this information once you leave this weekend? Your job is to pick up the spiritual kit of tools. I, I say this, and I know it's taken flippantly, but when someone said it to me, it hit me between the eyes. <coughs> If I'm not ready and not willing to do work, Bill Wilson can come back from the grave and I will not recover. If I am desperate and willing to do the work, Mickey Mouse can sponsor me. <laughs> How many of you guys listen to Vision for You? Okay, I, that's one of the, I love Vision for You. I participate in Vision for You. But I think sometimes people think that has become an idol. If I listen to Vision for You every day, I'm going to recover. You know, I get people calling me desperately because they want the radio personality, Kim G, to sponsor them. I, don't, I can't make anyone recover. And I often, my personal feeling is the best sponsor you can get is the one who just recovered because there's an excitement that person has with the first person they sponsor they're never going to have again. And, they, and people want to get the personalities on Vision for you to sponsor them. My opinion, <coughs> two qualities in a sponsor. 
that you're looking for. You know how to find someone you can relate to? I was always looking for the skinniest girl with the cutest boyfriend. That was what I wanted. <laughs> That's what I want. I wanted to relate into. You want someone who has, had, has absolutely gone through all 12 steps and has had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. That's all you need. And unfortunately, that's sometimes hard to find, too. But those are the qualities you're looking for, whether or not you're both, both female, both come from the same economic status, both have kids, not have kids, whatever. That, that is so unrelated. Thank God. Thank God, because I don't know about you, but I'm like a 50, I'm a 52-year-old woman who's never been married, doesn't have kids, Irish Catholic background, grew up in Jersey. How many people can relate to me? <laughs> so I couldn't sponsor any of you by those criteria. But I can see the bobbleheads going up and down because you relate into my illness. And I can guarantee you that I haven't, I'm not there anymore. And that's what you're looking for, someone who's not there anymore. So that next paragraph, <coughs> it says, The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences. This is where I got to, once again, eight and a half years ago. I realized I had a lot of deep spiritual experiences in OA. Coming in and finding out I had a disease was a deep spiritual experience. Being around people who suffered like I did was a deep spiritual experience. But if I'm 17 years in OA and five years in a relapse, what I'm doing isn't effective. It's like, it was like Dr. Phil was knocking at my door. How's that working for you, Kim? <laughs> Not working. And I now wanted an effective spiritual experience. It says, which has revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. I wrote down the definition of revolution in my book. It says, a usually violent attempt by many people to end the rule of one government and to start a new one. I want a gentle sponsor. <laughs> I bought a book in Barnes & Noble called The Gentle Path Through the Twelve Steps. My disease drug me around by my hair for decades, and I think some gentle path is going to get me through. There's, these are drastic proposals. So I was going to have to have a revolutionary thought. Now the other problem was, it says my whole attitude towards life, towards God, and towards my fellows, I would do it the hour I was in a meeting, because you loved me and I loved you. And I would go outside that meeting and I would cause havoc all over my world and wonder why I couldn't stay abstinent. So I'm finally going to have to change. I'm going to have to change 24-7, 365. And when I, did, when I was committed to that and started doing that, my experience became totally different. Now, if you go down to that last paragraph, this was kind of what put the nail in the coffin for me. I knew I was screwed. I knew I had to work these steps. So it says, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. So seriously alcoholic as we were means I have the allergy of the body and I have the mental twist. I'm going to use Harlan again because some people will call me and, I, you know, and they'll talk about how inspirational Harlan is. But you know, Harlan was 700 pounds. I've never been 700 pounds. So I don't need to, I'm not as seriously alcoholic as Harlan. And that's what we have to get, allergy of the body, mental twist. It doesn't matter if you're 80 pounds overweight, 100 pounds overweight, a yo-yo dieter up and down 20 pounds, if you're anorexic, if you're bulimic and you throw up and you're bulimic and you're exercise, do you have the allergy of the body and the mental twist? And if you believe that's a serious alcoholic, it says no middle of the road solution. So before away, the middle of the road solution was getting that right boyfriend, being able to afford to go to the right gym, join this new diet club, 
but even in OA, the middle of the road solution I lived on for a long time was three, three phone calls a day, three meetings a week. Doing the, one, the OA waltz, steps one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, which was always followed by relapse. Maybe doing the steps Monday through Friday, but taking the weekends off. So I had to be, realize I was beyond that middle of the road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. That's that hitting bottom. Hitting bottom is not how much weight you've gained. It's not a physical thing. My experience is it's a spiritual, mental death. What we talked about in the beginning, that on page 151, I can't get sober, I can't get drunk, can't live with the food, I can't live out without the food. I'm spiritually bankrupt. That to me is the bottom. And there was no returning from human aid. So no sponsor, no boyfriend, no job, no nothing could save me at this point. We had but two alternatives. And I remember someone pointing out a couple years ago that alternative is different than choice. Choice means I can do it or not do it. Alternative means one or the other. And if I have three or four alternatives, I'm not there yet. So I'm down to these two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And the other was to accept spiritual help. And this is what killed me. I thought the intolerable situation was being in the food. It was being in relapse. That's not what that is. The intolerable situation is being abstinent. How many of you say, nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels? Abstinence is the most important thing in my life today without exception. If that's your truth, you're not, that's not my experience. Abstinence sucks. <laughs> abstinence is painful. I mean, I remember when I first heard that term, back-to-back -back abstinence. I'm like, what the frick does that mean? You want me to be abstinent in the morning and the afternoon and the evening? That's insanity. Did you ever hear that term, you gotta take the tiger out of the cage three times a day? You know, and alcoholics just have to not drink, we have to eat at three times a day? Well, you said you were an alcoholic, right? She's got, look at that, she's got a drink right there. She's drinking. She's just not drinking alcohol. I eat. I don't eat my binge food. We use that as a stupid excuse all the time in OA. In fact, we'll die faster from not drinking than not eating. And I don't take the tiger out of the cage three times a day because my food plan does not in, in, involve any of my binge foods. I enjoy my food, but it's not entertainment anymore. So there is no tiger in any cage in my life. And that's why I realized the intolerable situation was being abstinent. And if that's my intolerable situation, I have two alternatives. One is to blot it out, pick up the food. And the other is to accept spiritual help was to pick up the steps. So am I going to pick up the food or pick up the steps? Pick up the food or pick up the steps? And gratefully, a little over eight and a half years ago, I wanted this recovery just a smidge more than I wanted the steps, than I, than I wanted the food. And that's where recovery began. So how many of you guys know um, about uh, <coughs> who Roland Hazard is in the history of AA? Okay, so for those of you that don't, Roland Hazard is very critical in AA. He's on page 26 and 27. He's that certain American businessman. Page 26. And <coughs> And he's not part of the first 100 because he did drink again. But I love Roland Hazard. Just to put it back in historical 
part. The AA was growing in, these, in the 1930s. What else was going on in the 1930s in America? Depression. Great Depression. Right? So 25% unemployment rate, everyone's in these bread lines, and Roland comes from money, old money, political money. I keep meaning to look this up on Google, but I, th I think it's his father or his uncle actually ran as vice president for the United States. So he was really involved in a political family. And he had access to everything. His parents sent him to every psychiatrist across the country. At one point they paid for someone to go on an island with him for a year and the second he got off the island he drank again. Kind of reminds me today of these, you know, these um, sober companions that they have. People go around with people make sure they don't drink. And at the time there were three top psychiatrists. Sigmund Freud, who most of you guys have probably heard of. My undergraduate degree is in psychology, so I was fascinated by this. So Sigmund Freud had two um, famous students. One was Alfred Adler and one was Carl Jung. So first they went to, to Freud and he wasn't accepting patients. Then they went to Alfred Adler, he wasn't accepting patients. And then they asked Carl Jung and Carl Jung agreed to help their son. And it wasn't like, hey, you know, Carl Jung, can you please evaluate our son for us? He went to live with Carl Jung in Switzerland. Now I've heard it's a year, I've heard it's two months, I don't know historically which one it is. But he went and lived with him. So that's the access to he had. And when he, after he got treatment with Dr. Young, he said, go, I've taught you everything I can. He has to go back to England and take a boat back to the United States. And in France, someone asked him the critical question, hello sir, would you like a drink? And he said yes and got drunk. So this, once again, busts my delusion. See, I always thought I wasn't properly financed. <laughs> if I could have a personal trainer, and especially if I could have Delvet on Big Biggest Loser, I could stay abstinent. If I could get into that Dr. Phil house, remember this was the 90s, if I get in that Dr. Phil house, I would be okay. If I could have a personal chef, I could be okay. If I could afford this program, that diet program, afford to go to that gym, I would be okay. This guy had access to everything, and it didn't matter. And on page 26, it actually says, <coughs> after he's had um, some time with Dr. Young, it says, above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. There was a book, and I'm not going to mention it on, on the recording, but there was a book in the 90s that has a beautiful description of food addiction. I remember we passed it around in all the meetings, and... I knew that I was never going to eat again now that I understood what it meant to be a food addict. I ate again. So he comes back to Dr. Young on page 27, that second paragraph. He says, what do I do, doc? And it says, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. He's not even mentioning the body at this point. Because, see, he was sober all that time. So it wasn't the, the allergy that got him. It was the mind that got him to say yes when the guy offered him a drink. I have never seen... I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. And of course the alcoholic says, is there no exception? So this next paragraph, it begins with the word yes, I'm going to do the Joe and Charlie thing. So I'm going to read that paragraph and everywhere that there's a synonym for change, I'm going to say the word change. So it says, yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences, change. To me, these occurrences are a phenomena, change. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements, change, and rearrangements, change. 
Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side, change, and a completely new set of conceptions, change, and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement change within you. So it's something we're going to have to change. So let's go back on page 25. What did we learn? We learned that the solution was the four through nine process, right? So if ideas, emotions, and attitudes have to be suddenly cast to one side, let's look what four through nine does. So in four and five, we have three inventories. We have resentments, fears, and sex conduct. Sex conduct. They get cast to one side. That in six and seven, we look at our character defects that were selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened and they get cast to one side. And then in step eight and nine, we get rid of our guilt and shame and remorse of how we've treated others by making amends. And all that's cast to one side, and then what happens? A new set of conceptions pop up. So in life, in society, what do they say if you're hurting? It's more, right? More money, more sex, more, more education, more, more, more. In the spiritual life, it's actually subtraction. I have to remove all the gunk that's between me and this higher power. And when that happens, naturally, these new conceptions pop up. That's where all those, um, all those principles they talk about begin to surface because we're uncovering all the crap that's between us and this power. Does that make sense? So I'm going to finish up with one paragraph on page 28, and then we'll end with some questions. But you have a question now? Four and five have three inventories. Okay. So it's going to be resentments, fears, and sex conduct. Okay. And then in six and seven, we identify our character defects, which is that we're selfish, dishonest, <coughs> self-seeking, and frightened. Frightened. frightened and those get cast to one side. Thank you. So let's look at the second paragraph on page 28. It says, we in turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of a drowning man. So I heard this described quite cutely and reminds me of my own experience. If you're drowning and someone throws you a life jacket, you grab it. But in Overeaters Anonymous, if someone throws you a life jacket, you look at it and go, don't you have it in pink? I think I want it in pink. And then if someone even gives you a pink one, you're like, oh, I want powder pink. This is an electric pink. So that's what, I, and I, even as a, a recovered woman, I have to seek the solution with the desperation of a drowning woman because I know what I suffer from. So once again, I, I believe, I'm convinced of two things right now. Number one, that I am experiencing permanent recovery. I never need to eat again. Once again, I'm not cocky, afraid, or anything about that. If I continue to do this work, I also believe if I stop this work, I'm three or four days away from a relapse because I know how sick my mind is. So I seek this solution with the desperation of a drowning woman because I know who I am and I know what I suffer from. It says, what, what seemed at first to be a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. So this was a confusion for me, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow more in step two. The flimsy read is step two. 
the loving and powerful hand of God is step 11. How is that proven? Steps 3 through 10. See, I thought in step 2 you had to believe in God, have a relationship with God, and have a fully defined God. And that's not it. I just have to know I need a power. I get a relationship and access to that power in step 11. Because if, if the problem is powerlessness in step 1, and the solution in step 2 is power, and I can get it at this time, we could have a pamphlet. <laughs> it could be a two-step program. All step two is acknowledging I need this, and I have, in order to get it, I have stuff I have to do in between. And it says, a new life has been given to us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. So that design for living, I always think, well, I'm an accountant, and I always think of that like, I'm not a CPA. And the one reason I don't want to be a CPA is because when you become a CPA, you have to do continuing education. And the way you keep your license, you constantly have to be taking classes, and I don't want to do that. And a lot of professionals, you keep up your law degree or a medical degree, you have to keep getting certified. That's the same thing with, with this recovery program. I can't stay recovered on yesterday's work. I have to continue to do this design for a living. I have to continue to grow in understanding and effectiveness in this work. So we are at 8.52. Let's look, actually, let's look at um, my two uh, prejudices. So anyone is fat is, or overeats is a compulsive overeater. Is that true? Did we learn that? Yes, not, true. not true. And if my main problem is the food, therefore absence is my answer. Is our main problem the food? Yeah. It's our mental twist. Okay, so anybody have any questions before we, we stop this evening? <coughs>